number three. Here it is. News Talk 1110 wbt The Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, we're going through this Washington Post editorial. Their editorial board said the Hunter Biden story is an opportunity for a reckoning. Simultaneously, as John Sexton at HotAir.com called it, simultaneously calling for a reckoning among media outlets who ignored and downplayed the story, but the editorial also offering justification for the hesitancy of outlets like the Washington Post for not doing the story. And basically it comes down to lawyer for orange man bad. That's the reason. Rudy Giuliani was shopping this story around, so we automatically dismissed it because that's what journalists do. That is not actually what journalists do. You know how many people have shopped stories to me in the course of my 20 years in this industry? They try to give me stories to to cover, to advance, to amplify. That's your job, guys. It is. Oh, you don't like Rudy Giuliani? You don't trust Rudy Giuliani? Okay. That should be part of your investigation then. You use that as part of your assessment of the facts. And if Rudy Giuliani turns over this documentation, the, 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 the copy of the hard drive, and, hey, here's Tony Bobulinski, and you can confirm his stuff, and then you can go and ask the Biden family and the president and the press shop. You can go and start exploring and tra- uh, chasing down what's true and what's not. That's the gig you have. You have. The gig is not to say, oh, it's Rudy Giuliani, so we can't trust anything he has, so let's just, you know, bury that story. I forget who it was. Maybe it was Glenn Reynolds, I forget, who said modern journalism is about covering a story until it dies, like smothering it before it dies, or until it dies. I I messed up the quote, sorry. I was just going off at the top of my head. I can't remember what the quote was. But basically, like, taking a pillow and covering the story up until it dies. That was the point. And that's what too many in the media do. This And this Hunter Biden story is a perfect example of it. And we're seeing another example of it with the, the Steele dossier stuff. How, how is that not being wielded as a weapon against Hillary Clinton, Mark Elias, the DNC? Where are the media people, these firefighters rushing into the burning building, saving democracy? Where are they on this? But it's too hard. It's what they said. They go, they say it makes obvious sense that newspapers wanted to wait to verify information before turning it into a story. The harder conundrum is what to do with true information that comes from a hack. It wasn't a hack. It wasn't a hack. Hunter Biden left a laptop and by law, he abandoned that property. It's not a hack. Harder still is how to treat true information that hasn't been stolen, but has been selectively shared to further an agenda. Once again, once again, that's your job. That's your job. This is the same thing, the same garbage they pull with James O'Keefe, Project Veritas, right? Same garbage. They selectively edited that video. Newsflash. Every single video on every single news story you have ever seen in your life is selectively edited. Sorry to be the bearer of truth, 
But that is true. Everything, every bit of audio that you have ever heard played in a radio news story has been selectively edited. That's truth. As one who selectively edits audio to this very day, I can tell you, it's all selectively edited. Otherwise, it's called raw tape. Raw tape, which is just bulk. It's just, hey, uh, I'm going to start recording this meeting and... You get the music playing in the background while we're waiting. Oh, no, now the meeting has started. Now it's just rolling tape, rolling tape, and then the meeting ends, more music plays, and then I stop it. That's raw tape. And unless I just turn that whole thing over to you and give that to you, then that's not selectively edited. Otherwise, if I pull out a soundbite and say, hey, somebody said something at that meeting, here's the soundbite, that's selectively edited. Again, I feel silly stating these obvious things to people in an industry of such importance this is why i'm so hard on the people in this business in this industry because i demand i expect better we need better back to the editorial the lesson learned from the 2016 uh election was evidently to err on the side of setting aside questionable material in the heat of a political campaign the lesson learned from 2020 may well be that there's also a danger of suppressing accurate and relevant stories. Refusing to verify or examine information, that's not journalism. And what this is is just excuse peddling. That's all they're doing. Just making excuses to try to rationalize why they didn't pay enough attention to a story of international importance. 10% for the big guy? That's corruption. That means people are compromised. The son of the president, the only surviving son of the president. Got an email here from Brett who says, Pete, how did you miss this? Hunter Biden, as we know, is a devout Christian, so 10% is for the ultimate big guy. It's God. He's just simply setting aside cash for his tithe. It must have been. I don't know why I didn't think of it. It was so, it was so obvious, it plummeted me. To quote the philosopher Jimmy Buffett, President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden are the picture of scandal and corruption that the Democrats and corporate media tried to make former President Donald Trump and his family out to be. But instead of covering the bombshell stories, the press now turns a blind eye. Jordan Boyd, writing at the Federalist, says. Hillary Clinton's campaign hired lawyers who hired a firm that hired Christopher Steele to dredge up fake news about Trump colluding with Russia. This false information was then fed to the Obama administration, which launched a spy campaign against Trump and his aides based on false pretenses. Meanwhile, there are plenty of real scandals about the Biden family and their conflicts of interest that deserve extra scrutiny, but are merely snubbed by the corporate press. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So there are plenty of real scandals about the Biden family and their conflicts of interest. Jordan Boyd, writing at The Federalist, says, There are literally receipts of the Biden family conducting shady business dealings overseas and profiting off of relationships 
with sworn enemies, but the corporate press doesn't seem to mind. Publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times, which won Pulitzers for lying about Trump. That's, by the way, why I don't care about the Pulitzer Prize. I used to care. I used to be a reporter. I used to care about winning prizes. I used to value that stuff. But they have so besmirched the value. They have they have destroyed the credibility of these awards. So I don't care. I remember there was... Um, so I recently, a couple months ago, I was interviewed by the old Charlotte Observer reporter, Jim Morrill. He's now, he retired, quote unquote retired, but he now does writing for freelance. And uh, he's hooked up with a publication called The Assembly. And they did a big write-up. He did a big write-up on a an online publication called The Asheville Watchdog that started up while I was still up in Asheville. And... I remember when they started up, I was a subscriber to their free newsletter, online newsletter. And it was a bunch of these, you know, former newspaper people that all found themselves retired in Asheville because that's what lefties do, right? They take all of their money and they come in and drive up the home prices in the mountains. And then they try to prevent anybody else from ever building anywhere near them so they don't get their view ruined. Anyway, they move out there and they run into each other at the same dinner party. What are the odds? And so they meet And, excuse me, they start up this uh, uh, Asheville Watchdog group, and they start breaking stories. And all of the stories tend to be really, really negative about Madison Cawthorn. It was only after I asked Cawthorn's opponent in the election, Mo Davis, hey, uh, Mo, what's up with all of these tweets you've been writing where you fantasize about murdering Republicans in very graphic terms. What's up with that? I asked him during a debate. And then all of a sudden, what? He had to answer for it. And then after that, there was a newspaper article or something, and then I think a TV station did a story on it. And then it started getting out. Thing went kind of viral. And then the watchdog people found it. They did a story Asked Mo, hey, what's up with this? Oh, and then he said, well, you know, I was just on TV. And they're like, good enough for us. That that explains it all. And they were fine with it. So anyway, I, a couple of years later now, I'm, you know, here in Charlotte. And Jim Morrill reaches out and says, hey, I'm doing a story on the Asheville Watchdog Group. Okay, what do you want to know? Are you interested in, you know, telling me about them? I'm like, I don't know what I can tell you about them, but... You know, I think he asked me, like, what was the what do conservatives think about it out in that part of the state? What do they think about it? I said, I don't know what all conservatives I could tell you what I thought about it. And I could tell you what I told other people to think about it, <laughs> because that's what we do in talk radio. I tell you what to think. Right. Isn't that the old Rush Limbaugh joke? Right? No. So I, I said, this is what I think about it. And this is what the common sentiment was. I told him some other stories, whatever. But that doesn't matter. The point is that. Jim says they won Pulitzers. And I said, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Okay, you got Pulitzers. Good for you. He selectively edited that. That's the quote he used for me in his piece. Without an explanation as to why, because I told him. And I actually wrote him back afterwards. And I said, hey, Jim, you robbed the quote of the context. You know, the quote, the the context was that the Russia collusion story was a lie, and they got a Pulitzer for it, and they haven't returned it. 
So, no, you got a Pulitzer, good for you. I don't care. That was the context of the quote. He was saying, well, they're all Pulitzer Prize winning reporters that started up this, uh, uh, this Asheville Watchdog website. Indeed, they are. Do I care about a Pulitzer now? I do not. You know why? They gave it to the papers for reporting lies. And nobody has apologized for it. Nobody's returned the awards. They're not doing a redo or do-over. No, no, it's just everybody's just going to keep moving forward as if nothing happened. And so, no, I don't care. Selectively edited quote. Anyway, there are literal receipts of the Biden family conducting shady business. Only now, two years later almost, after reporting on Hunter's abandoned laptop, that the reporting got censored and suppressed under false allegations of Russian disinformation. Only now is the press barely admitted that the laptop is legit. And what's more, by the way, um, what of the letter from all of these military people who said it was Russian disinformation? You guys going to call them out for pulling a hoax on you, the media? No, of course not. Because they're part of it. They're part of this narrative crafting Industry. Hunter exploited his father's political reputation to strike business deals with oligarchs in Ukraine and China, a fact that was apparent even before the laptop emerged. Hunter may have even possibly given a portion of his equity deals to Joe Biden, 10% for the big guy, but the legacy press refuses to report on that significance. While Biden was vice president, Hunter was appointed to the Burisma Holdings Board of Directors for a whopping 50 grand a month, despite having no prior energy experience. He also helped his Chinese business partners secure a deal, handing them the majority of a cobalt mine in Congo just two weeks before he traveled to communist China on his dad's then Vice President Air Force Two jet. Hunter also raked in millions of dollars from the ex-Moscow mayor's wife. Despite countless reports and ongoing federal investigations or inquiries into Hunter and his monetary affairs, the legacy press wants to turn a blind eye to the questionable actions of a tight-knit family whose patriarch is in charge of the U.S. government. And Jordan Boyd is exactly correct. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Mm-hmm. That's Zero Smith. All righty, so did you see the uh, the billboard that New York City is paying to uh, put up all over Florida? Have you seen this? I know. It's a New York billboard in Florida. Why would we care about that? Well, considering what we've got, like half of the state of Florida has moved to North Carolina and half of the state of New York, well, they went to Florida and then came half back, so... That's why they're called halfbacks, by the way. Did you know that? Halfbacks, the folks who came from New York, went to Florida. They were like, oh, this is too hot. And so they went halfback. Then they landed here. I don't know why. And I don't know why Florida. What is it with Florida coming to Western North Carolina, coming to the mountains? They're all over the place. I, I, don't, get, I don't get it. But anyway, New York City Mayor. What's his face? Eric Adams announced a new digital billboard campaign in five Florida markets denouncing, this is according to their tweet from the New York City Mayor's office, 
denouncing the hateful hashtag don't say gay law, which, of course, the law does not say don't say gay. The law doesn't say that. The left doesn't care. The media doesn't care. They just keep saying it over and over again. Don't say gay. Don't say gay. Don't say gay. They just keep saying it. And if you say it enough, it becomes true. When the legend becomes true, print the legend, right? And so this billboard says, come to the city where you can say whatever you want. New York City. In a related story, the mayor's office has fired a woman who took him to task over the mask mandate. (laughs) Literally the same day. It's amazing. So, right. So here's the um, don't say gay. All right. The the, the market's denouncing the hateful don't say gay law and inviting Floridians to move to New York. This is what the mayor of New York City is saying. Come to New York where you can say whatever you want to. We have a message for Florida's LGBTQ plus community. Come to a city where you can be you. Join us now at City Hall. Okay. That was their tweet that they sent out today. Ironically enough. Well, when I saw this and I'm, I'm looking through, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're asking people in Florida to come to New York, say, hey, move to New York. You can be you. You can do all that. Okay. Right. But like, isn't half of the state of Florida already from New York? So you would just be getting them back, right? You're just asking them to return home because a lot of people have left New York. You lost a congressional seat. You keep losing them, actually. You keep losing congressional seats because... People are leaving, and I can say this, I can say anything I want, by the way, but I could say this specifically about New York because I'm from New York originally. I mean, I got out as soon as I could. I went to college in Rock Hill, and I never went back. Well, except for the first summer to, to work. But I just worked, I saved money, and then I, and then I came back, and I never went back for another summer break. Um, but nearly four out of every 10 voters in New York, 40% are thinking about leaving. And the number one reason, you know what the number one reason is? Take a guess. Yeah, high taxes. The survey released this, by the way, heads up, Charlotte City Council, warning Mecklenburg County commissioners. The survey released this month by Zogby found 39% of voters are considering or already have made plans to head out of New York. That is up five points from a month earlier. If even just half of those people do it, New York is going to lose millions of residents and enormous political clout, not to mention the tax revenue. Even a quarter of progressives, 32% of liberals, 38% of moderates cite high taxes as their strongest motivation to leave. New York's tax burden has long been among the nation's highest and the Democrat-dominated legislature keeps uh, pushing to make it worse. New York Post editorial board from earlier in March says, notably, the second most cited reason people want to leave, a desire to find a better job or economic opportunities, which is kind of linked to the first (laughs) reason, high taxes. So in other words, if you add these two together... You're at somewhere about 60% of the people are citing conditions that you jokers are creating. High taxes spur not only people, but companies to flee and take jobs with them, reducing opportunity. That helps explain why New York so often suffers more unemployment than elsewhere in the country. 
So on the same day that the New York City mayor's office is telling Floridians, hey, come to New York, you can say whatever you want. That's not exactly how they run their own operations. The Big Apple mom, who crashed Mayor Eric Adams' press conference to blast him over the mask mandate for children, was fired shortly afterward from her job at the city law department. Daniela Jempel, who served as an assistant corporation counsel. So she's a lawyer. So I'm going to take one guess as to what direction this takes. She learned she was canned less than an hour after she confronted a caught off guard and apparently annoyed Eric Adams over when he would, quote, unmask our toddlers. They still have a mask mandate for kids under five in New York City. They're nuts. They're absolutely insane. Jampel had publicly challenged the mayor at an unrelated event on LGBTQ issues as he stood in front of a podium banner that read, come to the city where you could say whatever you want. Quote, three weeks ago, you told parents to trust you that you would unmask our toddlers. You stood right here and said that the masks would come off on April 4th, and that has not happened, she said. She attempted to ask why, but City Hall staffers tried to cut her off when they realized that she wasn't a reporter. Sources close to the matter tell the New York Post that Jim Pell, a leading local critic of the toddler mask mandate and pandemic school closures, was informed by email shortly after the news conference that she had been fired. Oh, fired by email. What, is she working radio? Oh, my goodness. I kid, radio. I kid. The law department spokesman confirmed that she was terminated yesterday, although... They said that the decision to fire her was made prior to yesterday. She has made, quote, troubling claims about her work for the city law department. Her decision to lie in order to get into the news conference, claiming to be a reporter, demonstrated disturbing lack of judgment and integrity. The mother of three had been out on maternity leave for the past eight months while actively speaking out against COVID-19 restrictions. City sources say the decision to terminate her actually came after she wrote a tweet criticizing the mayor for upholding the toddler mask mandate and said her job with the city entailed defending, quote, cops who lie in court, teachers who molest children, prison guards who beat inmates. It is a job I have done proudly until tonight. Fighting to keep masks on toddlers is shameful. I am ashamed of my office. And so the law department says that's what actually got her fired, that tweet. But I'm sure confronting the mayor didn't help much either. All right, I mentioned this story earlier in the program. Let me get to it. Oh, my gosh, is that twice in the same week that I've actually done the stories that I promoted earlier on it in the program. See, it only took about uh, probably, what, I don't know, 15 years or so, but I think, I've, I think I'm getting the hang of this gig, this hosting thing. Okay. Uh, Jessica Brown. For North Carolinians like Jessica Brown, who have been released from prison and are still on felony supervised probation, their right to cast a ballot was thrust into uncertainty last week bringing more questions to an already complicated and confusing system. This is the story, big write-up, Charlotte Observer, by Will Wright. Brown said, quote, How can you look at me and say, 
You don't deserve to vote. I paid my price. They levied a sentence on me. I paid it. I did everything they asked of me. Um, this is the part where if you were in the business of fact-checking, which I know the media is not anymore, but if you were in the business of fact-checking, you would point out that that's actually what she said is it's not true. It's not true. I did everything they asked of me. You have not actually done everything they've asked of you. It's actually not even a request. It's a requirement. The supervised probation is a requirement. It's part of the sentence. When when you got convicted and they said, here's the sentence, you got some jail time, maybe you got some court costs or something in there, uh, and then you got some supervised release, probation, parole, whatever it might be. You got something in that category. That's part of the sentence. And they're requiring you to serve that. So no, you did not do everything they, quote, asked of you. So how can you look at me and say you don't deserve to vote? I can look at you and say you don't deserve to vote because the law says you don't get to vote until you have fulfilled the terms of your sentence. And your sentence, forgive me for repeating myself, includes... The prison term, court costs, if applicable, and the supervised release component. That's the whole sentence. So if you're not done with the sentence, you don't get to vote. Now, if you don't like that law, change the law. Seriously, this is the point of the legislative body. If you can, and and the reason why we have a legislative body is because you have to now build a coalition. You've got to do the work of convincing and persuading and building enough consensus and building enough support to get a law changed. And that's hard. I don't want to do that. So you're going to just hire some lawyers who can then, you know, make up some new definitions for words and breathe some life into the living, breathing document that is our Constitution. And you can uh, get them to twist an interpretation to find a constitutional order that never existed before. And that's what these two judges did, these Superior Court judges did, when they said North Carolina's ban on felon voting is unconstitutional. Let's see here. This is, and this is also media critique as well, because all the reporter did here, who is this, Will Wright, and I don't know who this person is, but I, I mean, and, and he does some good work. I've, I read another piece by him today as well. Um, so he does some good work. This is not one of them, but <laughs> he does some good work. And I'm sorry if that hurts. I, do, I, I, I apologize, but I know people in media have very thin skin, but you only talk to people who were felons that wanted to vote. Now, granted, that's probably pretty difficult to track those two people down or three people down. I get that. But there are other people. For example, me. I could have told you. Yeah, hey, this is why uh, felons are not allowed to vote even though they're on supervised release. It's because that's what the law is. It's a sentence. It's part of the sentence. Because here's another guy, Travis McLean, fresh from Nakatomi Plaza. Anyway, you do your time, you pay your debt to society, and you get out, and it's like, what did I even do that time for? I can't even do things that every American citizen can do. Like voting. That's the thing. No, look, I get it. This The transition from prison back into civilian life is very, very difficult. I understand that. 
I and I actually support programs that help reintegrate because otherwise you're setting people up for repeated failure and the recidivism is terrible. So I don't want that to happen. Right. If, if the idea is once you are out, you've paid your debt, you need to be able to move on with your life. Then we need to make sure that that as uh, that is uh, as easy as possible to do, that we don't erect barriers unnecessarily. So I'm actually open to the idea of getting rid of the uh, the ban on felon voting when you're on supervised release. I'm open to the discussion. What I'm not open to is a couple of judges divining a new constitutional interpretation in order to make it so because they don't want to do the heavy lifting of going through a legislative body. By the way, McLean, he's got a lengthy criminal history. He was just released in February. And experts who testified in this case said that the law in question was specifically designed to keep black North Carolinians away from voting booths and that it's had a significant impact. Recall the law and then the updated law, all done by Democrats. And in 1973, the update to the law was done by Democrats and was done unanimously and was done at the behest of the NAACP. But now it's racist. Oh, by the way, Tijuana Brown, a candidate for Charlotte City Council District 3, uh, also convicted of a felony. So we got that to look forward to this election cycle as well. Brett Winterbull coming up next. Stick around. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.